Hi, and welcome to another episode of Economist's Corner, a CETA podcast where we break down the latest economic and policy issues. I'm Melinda Salento, CEO of CETA, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. The eyes of the world turn annually to whichever city holds the Global Climate Summit. Climate debate has become benchmarked by the cities that have hosted these events at pivotal moments, such as Kyoto, Copenhagen and Paris. Glasgow has now joined this list as the host of COP26, at a time when recognition of the impending impacts of climate change and the need for greater action has never been greater amongst the nations of the world. More often than not, these conferences have collapsed under the weight of lofty expectations. And the question is, how do the outcomes of Glasgow stack up? IBM Consulting's Global Director of Sustainability, Murray Simpson, was there in Glasgow and says this year there were a number of positive outcomes agreed at the conference's conclusion. So I think um, uh, there are two uh, aspects um, when we think about COP. Um, obviously, there's the, uh, the main aspect, which is um, COP itself and the purpose of COP, um, specifically the conference of the parties, bringing together you know, nearly 200 uh, countries at the highest possible level, so presidents, prime ministers, etc. And um, in terms of the outcomes um, of COP, from that perspective, um, and the official outcomes, you know, the, the achievements of the Glasgow Pact, um, you know, there's a commitment there to, to keep uh, within the 1.5 degrees uh, as a maximum. Um, now, that, that's obviously a significant commitment. Um, and I think part of that, sort of outside of the COP, if you like, the G20 agreeing to that was a, a really significant aspect. Um, but that is one of the main achievements of, of the deal. Um, so revisiting emission cutting plans next year over a period to try to keep a 1.5 target as a reachable target. Um, and that is really significant. Um, the, the other aspect of the deal itself is the first ever inclusion of a commitment to limit coal use. Sure, you know, there was a last minute change to, to a word effectively, um, basically to change um, the, the wording from uh, to phase out rather than phase out coal to phase down coal. <clears throat> I think, um, you know, that obviously anyone who's keen to see um, fossil fuels completely uh, removed from the picture, uh, which I think anybody with any um, concern about climate change and anyone any concern about the planet ex is exactly focused on that, would prefer to, to have the words phase out. Um, but the reality is it's the first time that um, coal has been um, specifically called out, fossil fuel has been specifically called out in a COP document, in a, in a final agreement. And that really does, um, it sounds the death knell for fossil fuels and the use of coal specifically, whether it's phase down or phase out. Um, so an, an agreement is the important thing here because we need to move together as a planet. And then finally, um, the third main achievement of the deal um, of the COP itself um, is the increased financial help for, de for developing countries. Now, um, you know, again, 
um, it can be said that uh, that financial help was identified many years ago and um, it hasn't met um, the targets that were set in terms of 100 billion a year by 2020. Um, and, um, you know, I think there's a commitment there to, to rectify that by accelerating finance going forward. So those are the three main aspects of the COP itself in terms of the Glasgow Pact. Um, and, and I think those are positive. Um, you know, it's a step forward. Sure, you know, we would all like to see five steps forward, 10, 100 steps forward, but it's a step forward. It might be a step forward, but did it go far enough? One aspect of climate action we've seen more attention paid to this year is the interplay between business and government, not least because business and the finance sector are widely seen to be leading. In terms of technology, um, getting the money to the right place is, is absolutely fundamental. So for vulnerable countries, for developing countries, um, and indeed for countries that are, you know, having to address a significant transition, um, using technology such as um, a, a platform. In fact, um, IBM are leading the design and development of a platform called Fast Infra, which is consists of 80 um, consortia members, um, private financiers, um, multilateral development banks, technology companies uh, and uh, countries and um, due diligence um, service providers and so on and so forth coming together and um, and actually working on a on a process which is an end-to-end -end, um, project life cycle for the mobilization of climate finance to sustainable infrastructure and by that very quickly what I mean is that um, this platform um, will enable the matching of project origination, project developers uh, with finance. So finance from public and private sources. Uh, if you imagine that um, the, uh, the process to, uh, to actually look at a project, to, um, to have it labeled correctly as something bona fide, something verifiable, um, that is a long process in itself. Then you have the whole due diligence process between you know, the project uh, origination or conception um, through to finding the right financier or investor in the project. Uh, and that's a lot of paperwork, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of people. With, a, with this end-to-end -end digital platform for the Fast Infra initiative, what we can do is smooth that out, accelerate it, and then try to get um, the money flowing faster through that cycle. And the final part of the cycle, very importantly, is not just the implementation of the project, but the monitoring and evaluation of that project. And so we're, we're talking about big sustainable infra infrastructure projects like solar farms, wind farms, um, maybe smart ports, maybe transport, clean transport, and so on and so forth. Things that are going to make a significant difference. And there's a $7 trillion gap per annum um, that around sustainable infrastructure um, to address the climate problem. And this initiative, this technology that we're designing and developing with the, with our partners will help to, to close that gap and get the money to the right place. And the private sector is pushing new frontiers. Star of the South is Australia's first offshore wind project proposed to be located off the south coast of Gippsland in Victoria, 
with the potential to supply up to 20% of Victoria's electricity needs. In September, the federal government introduced the Offshore Electricity Infrastructure Bill, designed to enable clean energy projects to be built off the coast of Australia. Star of the South's Chief Development Officer, Erin Coldham, says there's a lot of investment appetite for renewable energy in Australia. If you look at the case of offshore wind and Star of the South, we do see enormous potential and it's really around the conditions that we have here in Australia and considering that a lot of our power generation still comes from coal-fired sources, I think something like 70%. So when you look at the commitments that we've made, uh, not only net zero by 2050, but in places like Victoria and New South Wales, where you have emissions reduction targets of uh, you know, 50% by 2030, it means that we are going to need to replace that existing generation at a large scale uh, and therefore investment in new technologies like uh, offshore wind or onshore renewables is going to be a requirement. So we do see it as a strong opportunity here in Australia. Where is the shift to renewable energy and offshore wind really being led in the world? For the case of offshore wind, it's really been led out of Europe, which has been the case for a lot of the renewable sector. But we are starting to see really strong progress in places like the United States. So since the Biden administration came in, they've committed to 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. Uh, places like in Asia in particular is probably going to be one of the strongest markets for this type of technology. So it makes natural sense that for Australia, with a coastline uh, and 80% of our population living within the coastline, uh, the offshore wind resource being close to existing grid infrastructure in places like Gippsland and the Hunter, uh, it makes good sense that we should invest in this type of technology in Australia. And I think that's why we're starting to see a lot of interest uh, in our offshore resources, and that will continue to grow over the next five to 10 years, we expect. Why do we need to transition to renewable energies and how do we go about this? If we look at that macro challenge that we face and just the progress in this energy transition, uh, I think something like more than 40 countries have pledged to move away from uh, coal-fired power generation. So at the moment, we've got 35% of the world's power coming from coal-fired sources. As I mentioned earlier, in Australia, that sits at around 70%. So that really just does uh, underscore that fact that we need to be investing in new types of technologies. It's not going to replace the coal overnight, that's for sure. But we need a really smooth transition and one that is also uh, mindful of the workers and the communities that might be affected by the new technologies that are coming in. The leader of the National Party, Barnaby Joyce, was very vocal in the lead up to COP26 on the importance of transitioning regional communities to renewable energy. How do you address local community concerns? What I will say about our conversations we have on the ground, uh, there is that recognition that those industries are closing down. So people are looking for what's next and they're looking for hope, um, not only for their local economies, but also uh, for the next generations that are coming through. So we hear a lot of stories and it's one of the reasons that people are really supportive in Gippsland. They've been so welcoming of us um, with our offshore wind technology. I think there's a great sense of pride in that region for generating power and they'd like to continue doing that in the future with good paying jobs. And that's something that offshore wind can offer. Uh, we've seen globally that 
these types of uh, turbines out at sea, they do require a lot of maintenance. So we expect hundreds of direct jobs from our project. Uh, and we are talking with a lot of people in the area, uh, not only locals down by the coast, but also, for example, the owners of uh, the Yalorn Power Station, which is due to close in 2028. We're having very good discussions with Energy Australia's transition team about our skills mapping and understanding their workforce and how that might fit into an offshore wind workforce. So I think for us, it's about being respectful, uh, making those meaningful relationships so that we can understand what's important to those communities and then doing what we can to deliver for them uh, for the coming decades as this transition or transformation occurs. What are the next steps that we need to ensure that the shift to renewable energy is successful? Certainly, I think a lot of people in the industry have noticed a real shift over the past few years uh, from the debate over the climate and uh, energy policy to really seeing some very strong targets and commitments. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the Australian government has uh, naturally committed to uh, net zero emissions, but also the state-based policies that we're seeing really do encourage a rapid transformation of the energy system. So I think the momentum that we've seen over the past few years uh, will need to continue, and it's certainly not showing any signs of slowing down. Uh, but as I mentioned, it's not uh, one party that can do the heavy lifting. We really do need uh, industry partnering with government and coming together. Uh, we need to see investment in uh, the supporting infrastructure, so the grid, is one of the areas that has been of concern uh, with new investments required for industries like offshore wind. Uh, that extends to things like ports, where there is quite a lot of work to be done to ensure those ports can handle uh, the workload for offshore wind projects. So they're the sort of conversations that we'll look forward to having uh, with government and also local communities as we continue uh, doing the work that we're doing and trying to get the first offshore wind farm built off the coast of Gippsland. One thing we've seen in Australia is state governments responding to climate change with their own significant commitments to net zero and lowering emissions well ahead of COP26. At CEDAR's The State's Respond event, I asked New South Wales Treasurer and Minister for Energy and Environment, the Honourable Matt Keane, about the importance of Commonwealth government leadership in this space. Well, Melinda, the Commonwealth's leadership in this space is vitally important if we want to secure a more prosperous future for our entire nation. Uh, but in the absence of that leadership, then the states and territories are going to continue to work together in the national interest. That's what we've been doing. I speak regularly to uh, ministers from uh, the Liberal Party and from the Labor Party. And one thing that brings us all together is our common love of this country and wanted to ensure that we grab these enormous opportunities that are emerging, that we manage the risks that we're collectively facing, and we do it in a way that's going to set us up for a brighter and more prosperous future. Um, so we're, we're working together just this week, uh, uh, Minister Sanderson and I and um, uh, Minister Barr and the ACT, we're working together on uh, an, a, a formal platform to collaborate. And I know I've spoken to the other ministers, uh, Minister D'Ambrosio, 
um, Minister Spears. Uh, Minister Spears, I should acknowledge his amazing leadership in this as well. But uh, I think it's fair to say the states and the territories are on a unity ticket. We've got different challenges in our economies. Obviously, um, Queensland and Western Australia are very different economies to us on the eastern seaboard. Um, but where we can find common ways to reduce our emissions yet still grow our economies, uh, then we're looking to do that. So we're collaborating well and I'm hogging enough of the time here, so I'll hand over. <laughs> As the focus on necessary carbon and climate commitments intensifies, so too has the conversation on accountability and transparency, with calls for greater consistency around commitments and standardisation on this front. With ESG issues a growing focus of board discussions and against the backdrop of the launch of new global standards for sustainability reporting announced at Glasgow, these are interesting times. The United Kingdom is the first G20 country to make climate disclosure mandatory for its largest companies. It's just one issue that IBM's Murray Simpson is flagging to clients in relation to climate finance risks. Well, I think, you know, we've obviously seen the uh, task force for climate related financial disclosure um, rise up, you know, exponentially over the last few years and, and quite rightly so. So, you know, we, when we're looking at that, um, obviously, we need to consider physical risk, we need to consider transition risk, and we need to consider liability risk. Um, and um, when we're talking to our clients, working with them, um, we, we look at a whole range of different aspects. Carbon reduction, um, the net, their net zero goals, the level of their maturity on that journey, um, the analysis and the analytics around data that relates to their exposure to climate risk. And that, that, of course, could be physical, it could be transition, and it could be liability. And, um, and using technology to be able to identify uh, where those risks are and how significant they are, try to put a dollar amount on them um, wherever we possibly can. Um, but, but importantly, to use qualitative and quantitative approaches um, and, and work with our clients uh, in a partnership to, to address the, the issues that are so pertinent to them and that will have an impact on their partners and their value chain as well. And this again comes back to those ecosystems I was talking about. And, th and that's where data plays such a massive role. Ecosystems of data is vital to understand what's happening um, in the market and with individual clients, and with and with, you know, meaningful data um, collected in a consistent <clears throat> and transparent way, we, we're going to actually have a, a positive outcome as a result for for our clients, for the market, and for the planet. In Australia, Christian Gerges, head of policy at the Australian Institute of Company Directors, believes that climate change is one of the main issues of concern for Australian board directors. So momentum was already in this direction. Climate change is a, a mainstream topic now in Australian boardrooms. Now that wasn't necessarily the case even two years ago, but for many investors, climate change is now the number one topic they want to speak to directors about. We know that COP has received mixed reviews. There are doubts about how the national commitments made to date will limit global warming to one and a half degrees in line with Paris. And I do think there is a chance that investors will ramp up pressure on companies if Glasgow is not seen as, as a success. If governments aren't seen as stepping up, then I think the expectation 
will be for business to do so. Now, one of the other major announcements out of COP was the creation of a new International Sustainability Standards Board. And this is likely to see a single set of standards emerge rather than this patchwork of sustainability reporting and competing frameworks that currently exists. And so I think you know, that will be a major step forward. Um, and there's already been a climate disclosure prototype standard that's been released. I think on these issues as well, it's important to recognise that it's not just investors and activist groups pushing boards on these issues and influencing them. You know, we know employees and customers are also key stakeholders and, and often there are board members who, who really want to champion efforts um, in the boardroom. What reporting requirements do Australian companies currently have in relation to climate? Um, it's important to say that in the Australian context, there is no specific climate-related disclosure obligation. Um, globally, mandatory disclosures in place or already pending in the UK, New Zealand, US, Japan, all of which are key trading partners of ours. Um, the ASX corporate governance principles recommends disclosure around climate issues where climate sends material, but there's no firm obligation. Um, so, you know, we're seeing momentum in this direction. And, you know, I think um, hopefully once we get a common set of standards that will help lift practice um, overall. If Australia follows the UK's lead and implements reporting requirements for climate disclosures, what will this change mean for Australian companies? At the moment, it's difficult to compare sometimes companies because of these different disclosures. So this allows for greater consistency and I think it helps remove some of the confusion. It also removes a key reason why some companies have declined to undertake sustainability reporting because if there is a single set of um, well-accepted industry um, practice, uh, then I think then that's a, a, a much more um, clearer decision and an easier way to go forward. Because in the end, companies would like to be compared fairly against their peers. And so a single set of standards will allow that to happen. One issue that no doubt faces boards is the question of assurance in this space. How will boards ensure that the information they are reporting is credible? One of the key things which hasn't been discussed too much to date is really this question of assurance. In other words, how can directors be confident that the market is being provided with information that is robust and credible? Um, practice in this area of sustainability is less developed, less mature than, say, traditional financial reporting, where there's long, well-established audit processes. Um, so I think this will be a, a challenge for boards and also um, those that will support um, this reporting in terms of how do we make sure that the information being given to the market is credible and robust. Um, traditionally, boards feel um, sometimes less comfortable making forward-looking statements, particularly on complex matters where there's many variables, and that's obviously the case with climate change. So I think this is going to be an area of huge focus over coming years, um, especially if these global standards do materialise, and more importantly, um, were they to be implemented in the Australian context. What are community expectations around climate disclosures in Australia? Um, investors and stakeholders are demanding more, especially on climate change disclosure. Now, directors aren't discounting litigation risk around climate disclosures, but a few years ago that was much more of a focus. I think these days there's a lot more energy being spent on explaining how boards are adapting to this great global economic restructuring around a low-carbon society, a low-carbon economy. So, you know, what are the opportunities as well, rather than just fixating on the risks and the downside. 
So I think for boards and, and management teams, this is an opportunity to engage stakeholders and investors about long-term value creation. And I think it's important to say as well, you know, boards and directors, they, they typically have a longer tenure than the average CEO. It's not uncommon for a listed company director to be on a board for nine years, whereas often a CEO will only be on for say five years or so. So they can take a longer term view. You know, we know from directors that one of the challenges they face in this space is the lack of a settled national climate change policy, and that's seen as holding back investment and long-term planning. Um, equally, we know there's a lot of work to be done to educate directors around climate change risk, and this is something which is a real focus of the AICD. Um, we've recently launched the Climate Governance Initiative Australia, which is part of a global network um, aiming to educate directors and also connect them with global peers around how they are overseeing um, this climate change governance risk. Are investors really focused on this issue? Um, up till now, uh, the only director that investors would really engage with would be the chair of the board or maybe the remuneration committee chair. But now investors also want to eyeball sustainability committee chairs and probe companies' approaches to um, climate change. There's going to be a big focus going forward on this question of greenwashing, that is, organisations um, trying to paint themselves as taking a green or environmentally friendly approach to their operations. But really, um, when there's a little bit of scratching beneath the surface, it being clear that there, there is more talk than action. So both investors as well as regulators are going to be focusing in on um, if people are putting targets out there, for example, that there is a credible pathway to those um, targets, for example, around um, net zero by a certain time frame. Uh, one of the other next frontiers for ESG in Australia is also this question of um, biodiversity and how corporate activity is impacting biodiversity. And this is obviously a, a big challenge in the Australian market, given um, you know Australia has such great flora and fauna, um, and um, the climate change obviously risks um, significant biodiversity loss. This is a conversation taking place overseas, but we're really only beginning to see that conversation getting started in the Australian market now. That's all we have time for today. I'm Melinda Salento, and thanks again for listening.